Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor, writer, director, and podcaster, Dax Shepard. Well, it's been 140 episodes since Dax Shepard last sat down with me, and a lot has changed in his life. He directed a film, Chips, where he got to jump motorcycles and blow stuff up. He's on a Netflix sitcom called The Ranch with his old buddy Ashton Kutcher. And, maybe most significantly, he started Armchair Expert, which is one of the best and most popular podcasts of 2018 and has turned into quite a phenomenon. If you haven't heard it yet, you are definitely in the minority. And in the process of starting that podcast, he learned a lot about what truly makes him happy. In fact, his entire podcast is inspired by his fascination with true happiness. He says, A lot of us go through life thinking, I would be happy if, I would have self-esteem if, or I would know contentment if. But those are illusions that most people don't get to find out are illusions. Well, Dax had the dubious honor of learning that lesson firsthand. Earlier in his career, he had all of the status markers and money that he thought would make him happy. But none of that prevented him from reaching one of the lowest points in his life, magnified by his demoralizing addiction to alcohol and drugs. Huddled in an airport bar, sucking down Jack and Cokes, Dax took a moment to evaluate his situation. As he describes it, my whole life I thought, man, if I had a million dollars? Well, I had a million dollars, and I couldn't even get on a flight to fly 35 minutes from San Francisco to LA without filling my body with drugs. It's with that wisdom that Dax asks his celebrity guests, you're rich and you're famous. Did it cure all the things you thought it would? Dax's honesty is contagious. He brings it out in his guests and the people around him. It seems like his superpower is curating human vulnerability and talking frankly about the messiness of life. And that's why he's one of my favorite people to talk to. Dax joins off camera to talk about the misnomer that is rock bottom, the magic osmosis that makes his marriage with Kristen Bell work so well, and why you shouldn't compare yourself to your neighbor's seemingly perfect life, unless you live next door to Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell. So pull up a chair and listen in. All right, pop it in here. We'll get it going. Give it some heat, too. I, I want to hear it. Oh, yeah. I want to be, like, turbocharged by it. <laughs> like, really put your back into it. Mm, let's try again. That was a five. Second sticks. Let's try Second sticks. Try let's a ten. See, yeah, yeah. Let's see if you can go to a ten. Here All right, we go. Here we go. Give it some elbow grease. Really put your heels into it. Nice. Really nice. I'd give that an eight. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the slate, it's an important thing. If you come in with a little quiet slate, it's like a weak handshake. Oh, it's also almost like, they're, like, like he's leading me to where I should be going. It's almost like as if he was like, oh, we're going to do this really emotional scene. Yeah. I want the clap of like, we're about to blow something up in an action scene. Right. You know, like, come on, you know, yeah. a motivating clap. Everybody be aware. People are going to get Shit's hurt on this take. Shit's about to go down. Yes, yes. <laughs> Did you ever, there were, I saw a great uh, documentary about Hal Needham. He was great on horses, and he started doing stunts back in the day. And uh, he then learned every aspect of, of being a stuntman. And then he started directing, ultimately. He was, he was uh, Burt Reynolds' stunt double for a while, and they became best buddies. And then so um, through kind of Burt's capital in town, he was given the reins to direct, and he directed right. Smoking the Bandit, one and two, he did Hooper, right? and his movies, the stunts are first. The stunts are the star, which is awesome, as a kid. 
And in fact, I showed my five-year-old smoking the banana for the first time over the Christmas break, and she was all in. Like, anytime a car jumped, she could get on board with that. And then also, she thought Buford and T. Justice was really, really funny. Right. But at any rate, this documentary actually wasn't about Hal Needham as much as it was one of his stunts he designed and executed, and, and they interviewed him for that. And it was... I want to say, no, it must have been a cannonball run. They jumped that dually, if you remember. There's a train driving down the tracks, and it's all big uh, container cars. Uh, and yeah. then there's one flat one. So it's really, you've oh, got 20 feet, through the... and this dually jumps through the flat one and lands. And his words exactly were, you know, it was one of these gags where we thought we were either going to be celebrating with some cold beer or the next day we were going to be walking next to a hearse with our heads hung low. <laughs> but I was like, wow, things were different in yeah. the 70s. It was like, yeah, it was two good. outcomes, boys. We're either going to be slapping each other's asses or one of these is going to be dead. Let's shoot it. <laughs> Let's go. Is everyone ready? There's and then the slate guy comes in and goes, wow! He's got like a nine-foot slate. It takes three guys to operate. Uh, but the other stunt like that is um, I got the Blu-ray edition of Road Warrior, which I can't yeah. recommend enough. Yeah. And I watched it with the commentary on. And it was just with your five-year-old as well? No, no. This was with a few other gentlemen. And... Uh, there's the big uh, semi-stunt at the end of the movie where the semi goes off the road and it flips over onto its roof. And, right, yeah. And they were out in the middle of nowhere, Australia, and um, they had determined that he had a really high likelihood of needing emergency surgery right after this stunt. Like, they knew going in. So they had that stuntman prep for surgery. So he hadn't eaten in 12 hours. You're he, kidding me. I am not kidding you. It's on the That's DVD. That's insane. Yes, like imagine, it just doesn't work that way now. He's already got the IV. Uh, <laughs> he's got to pick in. and <laughs> Yeah. I just am trying to imagine like, you know, the moment before action when you're sitting in the semi and you've prepped for surgery. Right. And you've been told likely you're going to go straight to surgery. He didn't go straight to surgery. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, Dax, thanks for coming and doing this a second time. I'm delighted to be one of your... You're my second, second guest. My second, second. Yeah, you're my second, second. I love second. that because I'm uh, superstitious against odd numbers. Oh, so perfect. Two even it's numbers. Perfect. Which born makes on, another even number. That's right. Two and two and four. I'm 44. I was born on January 2nd. These are all good things. Well, the last time you were on, I think it was episode 36. Now okay. we're like 176. Oh, wow. And since you've been on this show, you left... You mm-hmm. took all my secrets. That's right. And you started the most popular podcast ever. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. seriously, Armchair Expert, it's, it's, it was the best new podcast of 2018. It, it was a phenomenon. It really was a phenomenon. Yeah. Phenomenon? Phenomena. Phenomenon. Phenomenon. That it was, and I was not uh, super prepared for that outcome because I've been working for 15 years yeah. at this, and... My experience up till that point was you work really hard for many years on something and then it comes out in bombs. Like, generally speaking, (laughs) you work super hard for a long, long time and then on a given weekend, your destiny is revealed to you and generally it's bad. Like, Hit and Run was a a tremendous amount of work. Uh, Chips was a tremendous amount of work. Uh, I've acted in a lot of movies that were tremendous amounts of work for those people who made them. And this thing, I, I sit down for two hours and I shoot the shit, which is my hobby already. 
I put very little time into it and effort, and then it worked. Yeah, it worked. Well, I don't know if that's overall, an understatement. The overall message is, for me, I guess the lesson learned was like, work less hard. Yeah. What a great thing to find out. <laughs> yes. Again, I'm 44, and it's the first time it really went down that way, but I will take it. Well, I remember when you called me. You've been pretty integral on the whole ride of Armchair Expert. I've talked to you several times. Yeah, think. but what was the initial idea, and what was the impetus, and... Did you have like did you have sort of grander um, hopes for it than you maybe let on when you talked to me? I did not, which again maybe is the other lesson to be learned is that these other things I had huge huge expectations for, and not only expectations how they themselves might perform, but then all the things I'd pile on the success of that. So let's say chips had made a hundred million dollars. I then knew the next three movies I was making. Like, I had planned the next 10 years of my life based on a Friday evening, which is <laughs> right. probably a bad strategy right. in life. Whereas this, I genuinely, and your show definitely plays a role in it. I could give the credit to probably your show, which was one of the f- only really long-form interviews I had done to date, and then doing Mark Maron's podcast. Right. And I, A, Really, really enjoyed those experiences in and of themselves. Like, I love uh, being able to have a conversation where I feel no obligation to deliver something hysterical in eight minutes, which right. generally is how, if you invite me somewhere uh, to a late night talk show, I, my job is to be pretty consistently funny for eight minutes. Right, yeah. But to be able to sit down and just kind of like uh, let something uh, find its own path yeah. is very fun in a new way. And your show was a big part of that. And then also, the response is so different. So whereas someone might say like, oh, I saw you on Kimmel last night. That was really funny. I can't believe you masturbated in the car driving over Laurel Canyon. Uh, (laughs) I missed that episode. Yeah. Well, after I got my vasectomy, (laughs) you got to go in and find out if your sperm is immobile. And if it worked, and you need to bring a sample, they don't want you doing it there. At least my urologist had no interest in me doing that at his place. Right. So I was supposed to bring a sample while I was in prep for chips, and like one meeting went long, then another one. Next thing you know, I'm driving from from Warner Brothers to Beverly Hills at rush hour with no sample. (laughs) Oh, no. And I have to bring a sample in, and I'm like, I remember telling like Nate, my brother, I'm like, I'm fine. I, I got a mason jar. I'll, 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 I'll get it done. He's like, you, you th- you're going to be able to do this? I'm like, yeah, no problem. Well, let me just tell you, uh, it is incredibly hard to masturbate when you have to. It's very easy when you're and probably when you're not driving, supposed to. Right? While driving over Laurel Canyon rush hour traffic, it, 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 was, it was one of the harder things I've taken on. Anyways, I bump into someone that goes... How did you balance the, the uh, iPad with the porn on the, on the dashboard? <laughs> well, luckily... <laughs> I was thinking about you, and so I <laughs> could just... That was yeah. how the podcast started. That's right. right. But I had people um, say, like, send me tweets after Marin's that were would say, like, oh, my gosh, um, I, I, it was so profound what you said about sobriety, and I had tried it a couple times, and now I, I really want to give it another try. Like, it was just really, like, I guess the kind of outcome or response you would hope a movie would would garner, like... When I make a movie, the goal is, oh, I have a certain point of view about this experience on planet Earth through innumerable different circumstances that's created this 
point of view. And, and I'm going to now spend two years to try to bring you into this point of view. And hopefully you'll find that entertaining or thought-provoking or whatever. Well, so many things can go wrong between sitting down and writing the script and then it being marketed and all these different things. And even if you succeed for the most part, you also are stuck within the structure of a story. It has to have a beginning, middle, and end. It has to have stakes. It has to have a, a, an inciting incident. It has to unravel. The third act's got to solve everything. You know, you right. you are at the mercy of structure. So I find that just talking <laughs> with other people and listening to it in your car or on the treadmill or whatever is is far more effective to letting people into your point of view right. about this experience. Isn't it funny that 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 an artistic statement like writing a film and directing it and throwing two years of your life into it, right? Your goal there, beyond entertaining and being successful and stuff, it, it is to, to share a little piece of your yeah. soul. Yeah. Uh, I think minimally when you, you take something on, the minimal requirement you should have for yourself is that you're trying to create something that you would either want to watch or listen to or consume in some way. Yes. You cannot set off trying to figure out what everyone wants to consume. I just don't think you, you have a roadmap to figure out what other people want to see. So I, make, I have made a few movies that I wanted to see. I was mad no one was making a Smoking the Bandit movie but that also had a love story. Or I wasn't mad, but I just, I wanted to see that. So then I made that. And then the, then the lottery takes over and maybe that's broadly appealing or it's not. Generally, in my case, it's not been broadly appealing, which, again, is fine because I at least walk away with, I still did make the movies I was dying to see. Right. And then, like your show or my show, I have to walk away going, that, that, that's the, the conversation I would have wanted to hear with Sarah Silverman or so-and-so. Right. And I think that's, that can be hard sometimes, especially when success comes along and you go, well, how do I repeat that? Yeah, well, you and I had a great talk. We've had really fun talks along the way because the first talk was like the mechanics of maybe how all this works. Right, right. right. But then after I've had like 40, 50 people on, I'm now like, I'm calling you and going like, oh my gosh, have you ever interviewed so-and-so? Yes. Right, and then there's this kind of like this insidery thing of swapping like how that experience was. And then you find out that it's less about the job you did and more about the fact that this person can only be themselves. That's right. Some people have the ability to communicate their insides better than others. Absolutely. There are better and worse communicators on planet Earth. Yes. And you'll get all of them on this show. Yes, yeah. exactly. And yes, um, it's not unlike like parenting. Like You want to give yourself so much credit for how they're turning out, but then like you have a second kid and you're like, oh, complete opposite, <laughs> right. doing the same thing, and it's backfiring. So you go like, oh... Hmm. I'm not as uh, big of a role as I thought. But another thing that we both kind of bonded over was, so I had zero expectations, which is great. Right. And because of that, I have zero fear that I'm messing it up along the way because I don't even know what it's supposed to be. But then when it's popular, then all the fear creeps in, which is so weird. Oh, and I don't know if it's weird. unique to my psychological disposition or something, but I, I only got scared once it was doing well. And I only started evaluating how uh, good each episode was with this like microscopic attention and detail. Once I acknowledged it was something that I wanted to keep forever. And then I turned on the like critical, am I still doing a good job? And I think I suck at it. Like we yeah. were relating over yeah. like 
convincing yourself you sucked at it in one of the episodes or many of them or whatever. Well, when you think about fear, what it is is that your brain, I think, has created this future journey where something bad happens at the end. Mm -hmm. And we believe that narrative without really examining it along the way. Mm -hmm. Well, could that really happen? And what's the percentage of that terrible thing actually happening? So what I'm curious about is what that end picture was once you once you had something you wanted to hold on to. Well, the end picture is, is, is I get bad at it all of a sudden. I get lazy. I do, I'm not doing something that was essential to the initial ingredients, and then it just goes away. And then I lose this fun thing uh, where I get to travel around the country and do live shows and meet all these people. And, you know, it's just the added value of the experience on so many levels is pretty profound to the degree that I would hate to lose it, you know. Uh, it generates money. I love that. I'm a greedy little piggy. Uh, people are, are are genuinely dialed into it. Like they're very present in their, they're, they're having like this experience. And then when I go out and meet them in real life, like there, there's a, a, like an enthusiasm and a community to it. And, and, uh, it's just, it's overwhelming in all the most wonderful ways. And uh, I think when something grows that quick, it's, it's hard to trust. Like, yeah, why easy come, easy go, for sure. Like, if it, could, if it could happen this quickly, certainly it could go away uh, with, you know, equivalent speed. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Because I would do this thing regularly. My pattern is, uh, let's say I have a movie coming out, and uh, my worst fear is that it'll be a financial disaster, and I will be embarrassed everywhere I go, and everyone will know that I failed. That, that, that's the fear. Yeah. So because that's my fear... Leading up to it, I start going, it's not going to do that well. Like, I'm trying to prepare the people in my life. I, it's not tracking very well or, you know, any number of excuses. I'm, like, putting them out there that, like, you know, th- don't get your hopes up. I don't think this is really going to work out. And, you know, why I'm really doing that is I'm trying to get out of being embarrassed. I'm, like, I'm trying to go, no, it, it failed just the way I predicted yeah. it would fail, right? This was sort of the plan. Make a movie. <laughs> It'll fail. <laughs> I'll learn something. <laughs> Check. <laughs> Work for two years. Kill yourself. Uh, Failure. You, Check. You didn't think I wanted that to succeed, did you? No. Right. It's like that the true the embarrassment would be caught thinking it was going to succeed and then it wasn't. So I'd rather get it out there that I don't think it's going to succeed so no one feels bad for me. It's, it's this very complicated way of heading off yeah. embarrassment. And then it becomes a pathological pattern that you get stuck in or that I, I have been stuck in. Um and I'm trying to break myself of that. And then I've also told myself, and again, I've gotten better from movie number one to movie number three, which is now I say to myself, go ahead and believe in it. Go ahead and just hope and believe it's going to magically work despite these numbers that are suggesting it's not going to. It's okay to have hoped for it and wanted it and it didn't happen. It's not that humiliating that you are also wrong on top of this thing. Like. All you're doing is denying yourself the experience of ever and enjoying it, you know. And then if it's not, deal with the outcome of that. As opposed to living the next 10 years convinced that that's what's going to happen and never enjoying this moment while it's happening. It's right. It's all dicey. Well, I, you know, something struck me with the very first episode with you and your wife, Kristen Bell, who she was your first guest. It came up rather quickly in the episode. That, that well, in the intro, right? In the intro that you had Because I was not going to release it. Oh, you weren't? It really crossed my mind, like, you can't put this out here. Like, you're, you're a monster. You're a controlling monster. 
And you guys are fighting for half of it. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to hear this. Well, it was super honest. And then as you're going through the show, you both mentioned that you come on this show and you both said things on this show that got a little blowback from, sure. from the family. Right. But what I wondered was if that also had a opposite positive effect of, oh, look what happens when we can publicly be totally ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you knew that, that was going to be the thing that people really connected with. I knew I was going to proceed that way as the person interviewing these folks. I had very low expectations that the guests themselves would maybe meet me halfway and, and maybe match my vulnerability. But, you know, I have had the experience, the personal experience, which, again, is very unique to have, which is I've come on a show like yours and just owned all the many ways that I'm flawed. And the outcome in my situation was, you know, at first my mom felt a little exposed by that, think some things I had said, and I felt bad naturally. And then she called me about a week later and she goes, you know, I've been really thinking about it. And that's your story. It's your story, and you are fully entitled to tell your story. And I'm a part of that story, and sometimes that might be embarrassing for me, but you own your story. It's your story. You're allowed to tell it. And so she kind of, you know, she was an example of someone who uh, never hid her her defects from us. She always owned her, her shortcomings and her failures as a parenting technique. Like, she never was pretending... She hadn't gotten kicked out of school or got pregnant early or got drunk at a party. Like she, she, she was very honest with who she was to us. And I, so that was an example. And then you couple that with getting sober, which requires a lot of honesty. And as you start saying things out loud in meetings, uh, which is a very safe place to do that. Uh, I'm speaking now about sobriety. When you're, yeah. when you're speaking in a 12-step meeting, you are saying things that are really shameful for you often. And then you're looking at the faces around you and you're expecting to see people go like, but you're not. You're seeing people go like, I did it too. I've been there. I, I can relate. And I don't have a mission statement, but I do really think that the whole world could benefit from what happens inside of a 12-step meeting that uh, we are all led to believe that our neighbors are somehow crushing it and doing it perfectly yes. and they're not fighting and they're not doing all these why, things. Why is that, you think? Because we don't let people see that. And, it's, of course, it's only been compounded by the fact that we now have this digital medium, which makes it even easier to curate your self-image. Way easier than it was. Like, you know, you remember growing up and you live in a neighborhood and you'd hear neighbors fight. You'd hear the dad start screaming, yes. and, right? Yeah. But now I think increasingly our interactions are our are, are virtual interactions where we're seeing our friends on vacation. We're seeing the best meal our friends ate that week. So you're just more and more convinced that everyone else is doing it correctly. They're doing, doing it without wreckage, without hurting people's feelings, without apologizing, without shame, all these things. And, and I just think... Uh, oh, I have a unique opportunity to be the one that goes first publicly. Like, all right, I'll do it. I'm a piece of shit. I stole drugs from people. I cheated on people. I, you know, I'll do it. And probably some sector of the country is like, that guy's a scumbag. But I think maybe a bigger sector and the one I want to connect with is like, oh, yeah, me too. I did it. Uh, Oh, God, I feel a little less shitty about myself. 
you know, it's, it's funny listening to you and Kristen talk that first time. Yeah, because we didn't really. So, just, just, yeah. Yeah. The, the point is, is I thought this is a slam dunk. I'll have Kristen in here. I'll bang her out. We've done uh, 10,000 interviews together. We have a great rhythm. Right. And she was annoyed that she had to come do that podcast because she wanted to go to Michael's and go shopping for some yarn or something. I don't even know. And so she started annoyed. She convinced herself I was going to try to get her to talk about something that she wouldn't want to, which was not my goal. So, like, her guard was up. She was annoyed. I got really controlling. And uh, it just went opposite of what I was hoping for. Yeah, in but all I, ways. But I until it, we found our way. Yeah, which was the fun thing is that, and I guess, ultimately, why I decided like, oh, to hell, then I'm going to put it up is because you get to see how we do find our way back over right. the course of two hours. By the time it ends, we're back into like, I think she's the greatest person alive. She thinks I am too, and we got our, ourselves there. I also, when it ends, I'm only aware of all the things she did that annoyed me. Right. And then I'm in the unique position to hear myself because I then listen to it and I go, oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're the monster here. You're like, you are so controlling. It's, it's, hum- it's embarrassing. So, again, you know, people just for fun should record themselves sometimes because, you know, as is so often the case, our, our internal self image versus what we're portraying. There's a big chasm there quite yes, often. But I think that probably set the die for the show. You deciding to put that one out instead of going, now I've learned about how to do this. The second one will be great. And but yeah, part of me thought, on. let's just do another one. Yeah. Like, let's do the thing that people like about us. You know, that we, in general, do love the shit out of each other and are pretty supportive of one another. Like, let's, let's give them that. So right there, that was... That was setting what the show was going to be, is deciding to put that out and having it be what it was going to be. Without even knowing that I was making that decision, you right. know. But I was nervous. You know, this isn't the version people necessarily associate with us. Yeah. And so this could be off-putting and that could pretty much end it. Because if I can't launch <laughs> her and I, because right. there is this weird, um, you know, uh, we have some combined appeal that neither of us can even really fully understand or comprehend. It's true. There's something that the two of you together, I mean, maybe maybe it's that same thing that we think is happening in our neighbor's house. And we're like, I want what those people have. Sure. My relationship is not what, I don't go to Africa and make a video of Africa. My boyfriend didn't give me a sloth for my birthday. There's right. like a, I mean, when is that, that sloth legal? thing happened, when that sloth thing happened, one of my funnier friends from Michigan, Ken Kennedy, he, he sent me like a, a text that said, I hope you can sleep well tonight knowing that a couple hundred dumb, dumb hillbillies are going to try to steal a sloth from the zoo to replicate <laughs> what you did. <laughs> I hope you sleep well tonight knowing that that's what you've created. I wonder if that actually happened. <laughs> you know, part of me hopes it has. Yeah. <laughs> Some, like, very romantic dude <laughs> drinking a glass bottle of Mountain Dew. and some get that sloth. <laughs> I'll make you happy. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you know, uh, going back to that episode you had with your mom, that was a fascinating episode. And she talked for two and a half hours, almost, 
Mm-hmm. Two hours and nine minutes, I think. Oh it was. wow! And you're, 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 you astound me always with your research. Well, I looked yeah, at the yeah. little okay, yeah, well, thing. I was detail. like, oh god, <laughs> there's the truth. <laughs> we got it. Yeah. Okay. I wish I should check out that episode before yeah. you go. Oh my goodness! Two, <laughs> two hours. hours. Now, who has two hours and nine minutes? I got to reschedule my. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My, you got to call off the day. My sloth uh, stealing. <laughs> trip. Yeah. Put that on the back burner. Um, but. It was wild because I wasn't aware of just how tumultuous your childhood was until your mom came on and she talked about, she's had four marriages. Mm -hmm. She worked graveyard shifts as a janitor and as other jobs. She had jobs where she traveled. She was a single mom raising you guys. And her second husband was uh, abusive Uh towards her, physically abusive. Mm -hmm. And at one point in the podcast, she talks about getting to the point where she was either going to kill him with a frying pan or kill herself with the car Mm -hmm. and the exhaust because she couldn't stand the shame of the idea that she failed in her first marriage, Mm -hmm. found another man, got remarried, and he was wrong for her too. She couldn't get divorced a second time. And this idea that we're talking about of shame and embarrassment and public humiliation and worrying about... And the power of it. Yes. And I was just curious what was happening when you were sitting with your mom in the room and she is retelling your childhood. What did happen, what was interesting is a couple things. Going into it, I know she has an incredible story. But I had a, a, a fair amount of fear of, well, my mom's never been interviewed. It's a unique experience to be interviewed and have to tell your story succinctly and not get lost or get distracted yeah. or whatever. So there's just, I was nervous, I think appropriately so, that just does she have the skill set to tell her story the way I would hope she could tell it. And she did that flawlessly. Like, I, I, I was just so proud of her that she was so able to just lay it out in this linear way and, and explore all the emotions attached to all that in the moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yet, and, and I already know her story because I was there for all of it. But <clears throat> some things came up, and Matt, you just brought up one of them, which it never crossed my mind to ask her, which is, because it just hit me while she was talking about getting her ass kicked by my second stepdad repeatedly, and everything I know about my mom, I just started thinking, God, it's so not her to have stayed with that guy. Like, why? Anyone who's not been in an abusive relationship is going to be dying to know, like, why? You're not weak. You're not, you don't lack assertiveness. How how could this have happened to you? This doesn't seem like this could happen to you. And and then she said, I was so shame-ridden about having failed at my marriage with your dad, and and, I couldn't possibly have called my parents to tell them I was going to do it again and another one. And that was very eye-opening to me. And I felt very sad for her. That that's what you'd be willing to do to, to avoid feeling the shame of failure. And I can relate so much to it. You know, I can relate to carrying shame in, 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 in the power it ultimately can have over you. It, it's got to be in the top three most destructive forces you can allow into your life, you know. And then I think the way out of shame is, is sharing it, is saying to another person, I did this thing or I've, you know, X, Y, or Z, and, and to have that person go, yeah, I did that too. There's so much comfort and relief that comes out of that. And, um, and then I think my mom's kind of takeaway, because, you know, again, 
I've had 15 years of practice living in public. My mom has zero <laughs> minutes yeah, of living right. in public. And she did that podcast and everyone was like, you're brave and I'm proud of you. And Really? Yeah. And, and, and the responses that we got from that episode are like none that I've ever got. Because I think you can really underestimate how many people are living in that kind of situation. I can, because if it's not in your sphere, if you don't have a friend who's in an abusive marriage or something, who's being honest about it, <clears throat> which is very hard to do, is you're kind of unaware, you know. Yeah, and, and or just if I talk about being molesting, if I, if I ever talk about being molested, that's another thing I'll get. Like, just a, a very significant percentage of the responses are other people saying they have too. Or I watch this great documentary called "The Mask We Live In." Have you heard about this? No. It's really it's a documentary about how uh, culturally we train boys to be boys. You know, what does right. it mean? What what are, what 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 definitions are we giving them? What what does it mean to reach manhood? What does a man do? And there's all these things that pretty are pretty unilaterally we agree that this is what a man should do or a boy should do. And um, uh, you know, one of the things that they uh, which is really troubling and I certainly experienced it the, my whole childhood which is we almost define boys in opposition to females. So if you're a boy, your coach says, stop running like a girl. Stop being, everything's a girl. The worst thing you can be as a boy on a playground is a girl. For your friends to say you're like a girl. And then the only thing worse than that would be to be a homosexual. So you're a girl or you're a fag. Those are like the two worst things you can be as a man. And what happens over time is if the worst thing you can be as a woman subconsciously, without even your awareness, you feel superior to women. Yep. How, how could you not? If that's inferiority to be feminine or female, then by the time you get to college and you're drunk, you know, you've got a pretty backwards view of everything. It's just very curious and dangerous. But at any rate, that documentary had a lot of statistics in it, and one of them was that 50% of all boys uh, uh, are physically abused in childhood. Really? Half. Half of boys are. Really? Yeah. It's pretty significant, be it from their dads, their moms, you know, whatever. Uh, we feel kind of okay about beating up boys, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I have two little kids. Uh, they're girls. Um, and I have found myself frustrated to a point where I thought, oh, thank God I'm doing this at 40 and not 23. True. Like, I am on the cusp of actually losing control of myself, which is crazy. But it's the truth. I have gotten so frustrated with them at different times where I know I need to extricate myself from this situation and get my shit together because I'm, I can feel myself getting dangerous. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm getting really, I'm like my 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 thinking has shifted from frontal brain to like midbrain reptilian brain, and I need to silence this or something. You know, so I've had the the wherewithal to go like, man, I I've just gotten out of some situations that were dicey, but I think as a result of being 40, I just I can't imagine being my 23 year old self, add hungover to that mix add financial insecurity to that mix, add mom hasn't come home in three days to that mix, it starts getting a lot more reasonable to me that people get hurt. Yeah. Kids get hurt. 
I mean, it is a testament to you in the relationship with your mom that you could sit down publicly and discuss those kinds of things mm -hmm. it, as adults. Yeah, I'm so lucky in, yeah. that, in that way. You know, it's funny, your mom, when she talked about being in the garage and then she got down and got her pants dirty, and that was the thing that made her, be, like she didn't want to get her pants dirty. And yes. that is the weirdness of being a human being in that even in your darkest moment, yeah. you have this, this person outside going, what are you doing? Yes. Right, or, or maybe she did. Yes, uh, again, yeah, and when you're, when you're, uh, uh, you're fantasizing uh, about ever being at a point where you'd kill yourself, the last detail that you're gonna add is that you'll still care if your pants are dirty. Like you just, no one would be clever enough to think that's gonna be a part of it or clairvoyant enough to know that like, oh no, you'll also still be very cognizant of the fact that you don't want your slacks dirty. <laughs> and then even my grandparents owned this um, border motel on the border of Indiana in, in Michigan. And again, this is morbid, but who cares? You'll have to deal with it, not me. Uh, <laughs> you know, people go to, the, to hotels to kill themselves. Yes. Because they don't, they don't wanna want to ruin their house. Yeah. Which is just really ironic when you think about it. Like that you've gotten to the point where nothing matters enough to even stay alive, yet you're still concerned about your shag carpet. It just shows you how complicated and silly we are. Yeah. And that, yeah, that my mom, that snapped her out of that. Yeah. Is her pants getting dirty? Don't underestimate vanity. Like, it can really save your butt. <laughs> because exactly. I didn't quit smoking because I was afraid of lung cancer, although I knew I most certainly would get it. I quit smoking because I was like, this is giving me really bad wrinkles. I don't want to look like I'm 60 when I'm 40. No, vanity is a great motivator. It I, is. Absolutely. I, I, I want to just stay on the podcast for a minute longer sure. because the episode I listened to with Gordon Keith oh. was so powerful, and he is also in recovery. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment on that show where... I guess he had stayed at your house. Uh-huh. And he went snooping around your house and was going through your books and found the big book. Right. Which is the Bible for AA. AA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he opened it up and inside there were a, a whole bunch of dates that you had written and crossed out and there were notes alongside of some of the dates that were very self-deprecating, mean. Self -deprecating, mean. <laughs> yeah. And the last date wasn't crossed out. Mm -hmm. and maybe you could just... September 1st, 2004. September 1st, 2004. Maybe you yeah. could share what those dates were. And It's really funny because... My first thought when he's telling the story that he found that book is I, I'm embarrassed by that. Like, I'm embarrassed how many times I quit and couldn't do it. Quit drinking or quit, quit drinking drugs. and drugs, yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot of dates in there. What, yeah. upwards of eight? Yeah, probably. And mind you, I'm probably only writing them in there at intervals where I'm actually getting a couple months, you know. So he's explaining that he was sitting on the couch early in the mornings looking at these dates. And what he sees, as opposed to me, is he sees uh, someone who just won't quit. Right. And he starts crying while he's saying that because I think he's been there too. And then I get really emotional. And I, for maybe the first time, am proud of myself that I didn't quit quitting. Yeah. Because it's demoralizing. Like to truly be powerless over something is fucking demoralizing. It's so rough. And yeah, that was one of those things where it's kind of a source of shame for me and then I see his reaction to that and that he that's a source of optimism for him. It like infected me where I was like, oh, yeah, good on you. You, you did. You kept at it. You didn't die from this. And a lot of us do, you know. Because I think there's a, there's a couple of common fallacies about 
sobriety. One of them being that people hit a bottom, and then that's that. And most addicts have many bottoms. I mean, I had many, many. I mean, I have many events that were even worse than the one that ended up being my last event. You know, like on one occasion, I um, I went out on a Friday night, and I had seen my pill drug dealer earlier in the day. And I had gotten pills for what I would have assumed would have been the next week and a half. So I had gotten maybe 100 Vicodin, 80 Percocet, uh, 40, for 40 Xanax, like 50, 60 diet pills. I go out on Friday night. I run into a guy. He, he's, I'm, I'm getting coked. You want some? Yeah I'll, uh, yeah, I'll get an eight ball. I get an eight ball. Then I'm at the bar and I'm like, I don't want to be at this bar. I want to be back in my apartment doing this. So I stop on the way home and I get two fists of Jack and a case of beer. Okay, that's Friday night. I come to in my bed and, I'm, and it's dark out. And I'm like, oh man, it must be. It must be like Saturday night. Like I don't, I'm a little foggy. On I remember buying all that stuff and going back to my apartment, and that's where the memory stops. And I like get up, and my ribs hurt really bad. And then I go out in the kitchen, and I see that it's all gone. Everything's gone. There's two empty fifths. There's beer cans everywhere. There's plastic from where the coke was. The pillbox is empty. I come to realize that it's Monday. And I'm like, I've never had an experience like that where I missed three day, two, two, three days. I have nothing. And again, this is you would call this a rock bottom in that I fully acknowledge you should not wake up from that. You sh- I should just know 90% of people are not waking up from that amount of stuff. And I called my mom crying, uh, just scared. Like very, I scared myself so bad. And, um, you know, you would assume that would be it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and no, there was a good year of drug use and alcohol use beyond that moment. So that wasn't the moment. The life-threatening thing wasn't the moment. The moment for me was really, <clears throat> I was about to start this movie, Zathura. I had just come off a really long press junket for Without a Paddle where I traveled everywhere. I was like, oh, I need a week. I want a week vacation. I go with a friend to Hawaii. I, you know, I trying to buy coke, I end up buying crystal meth, well, the hell with it, I start, I smoke crystal meth for two days, I, do, I get in a car accident with some local dude that's on the way to get, it's just a disastrous trip, I'm sick most of the time, and I'm just hammered and doing drugs the whole time. When it's time to leave, I have a layover in San Francisco, Hawaii to San Francisco, then to LA, when I get to San Francisco, I'm so physically sick that I have to go to the bar, I'm like, I have to get some alcohol down, there's no way I'll make it onto this flight to LA. So I go into the bar, but I've been in AA at this point. So I'm terrified someone's going to see me that knows I'm supposed to be sober. So I am very huddled into the corner of this bar, and I'm just ordering Jack and Diets, and I'm like trying to get a few down so I can get on this flight. I'm so physically ill. And I, it is the proverbial, there's a mirror right here. And I have this moment where I kind of take stock of my life, and I am about to star in this movie, Zathura, they're paying me a ton of money. People recognize me at the airport. I'm doing everything I had dreamt of doing for 30 years. It all came true. And I am the least happy I've ever been in my life. I'm closest to not wanting to be alive ever, as I've ever been. And I have every single thing on paper that I wanted. And that was a very weird 
I feel grateful for this because I was able to say, oh, something much more profound is broken. Because up to then, I could tell myself, well, if I had money, I wouldn't need to do this. If I, had, if I was doing the thing I wanted to do, that right. would solve right. everything. Yeah, but yeah. I think a lot of us proceed through life thinking we would be happy if. We would have self-esteem if. We would know contentment if. And those are illusions that most people don't get to find out are illusions. And I got to find out it's an illusion. I, I was lucky enough That's to interesting. have a million dollars. If you had t- my whole life, if I had a million dollars, like, do you know how I would feel if I had a million dollars? You know what my life would be like with a million dollars? Well, I had a million dollars and I fucking couldn't get on a flight to fly 35 minutes. Like, and I was like, oh, it's none of those things. It's, and, and I feel very lucky that I got to find that out. I think most people don't get to find out it's not those things. Which that, in its essence, is what my podcast is about. Because most people I talk to have all the stuff. And I generally ask, you're rich and you're famous. Did it cure all the things you thought it would cure? Right. And in general, it doesn't cure any of those things. And I'm very curious to what it is that does give you that feeling you thought those other things would give you. Like, I'm very, very fascinated on what things actually produce the outcome. You thought those uh, status markers were going to give you. What, what is it for you? I have to be of service to people that I don't want to be of service to. It's easy for me to be of service to someone that I think is high status and has what I want and I want them to like me. That's a breeze. Yeah, I'll, I'll go help Robert Downey Jr. move. Sure. Why not? <laughs> it's picking up the phone from the dude it's in AA. It's alpaca shaving season at Downey's house. <laughs> yes, I'll share help some. him out. Absolutely. He needs me. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's answering the phone call from the guy in AA that I don't like his personality and I'd rather not talk to him and I don't want to go to his apartment and help him. You know, if I can do something, be genuinely of service to someone that doesn't benefit me at all, it does benefit me a ton. Because when I'm of service to somebody, it's hard to think about yourself while you're actively helping someone else. You kind of get caught up in their thing. And yeah. Whatever their problem is, you, you, you get distracted by it. And I find there's a ton of joy and in, 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 in relief in not thinking about DAX all day long. And the converse of that, when you have people on that have achieved this high level of status, is you get insulated from having to help other people. No one asks you to move. Yeah. You may have a truck if you're rich and famous, but no one's calling you saying, yeah. can you help me move? You're right. Because they're like, they are too up here for that. Yeah. Man. I should ask Bradley Cooper to come help us move. It might yes. be a great favor to him. Does he have a truck? He'll get one if I, he thinks I'm I need sure it. He would. <laughs> Please I think do he that. can afford one. He can afford to just go buy a truck just to help you move. Yes. And then he can but, throw it away. <laughs> that's right. Well, I wonder if your show is in, way, in some ways analogous to that because... It seems like going publicly and putting yourself in a forum where you have to be brutally honest and curious about somebody else, uh-huh. there are some esteemable benefits to the show uh-huh. for you. A hundred percent. And I wonder if when you did your live show, if you discovered that that had somehow subliminally trickled into your audience. Like when you found out who your audience was, did it surprise you at all? Oh, so much it surprised me. Um, the first time we did a live show was here in L.A. Right. 
And um, when I get there, I don't really know what our audience is because I only see them on social media. And then after the, the interview, we turn it over to like a Q&A with the audience. And what I quickly start noticing is like the first woman's question is she's like, oh, um, forgive my outfit. I was wearing a dress, but then my thighs, because my thighs are big, they were sweating. And then I had to run to Ross and get something because my thighs were too sweaty. Like this is before the question even starts. And then the next person asks a question and they kind of divulge like four or five really vulnerable things. And I go, oh, this is kind of wonderful. I think the thing that people like about the show and what they're showing me back is just vulnerability. Like, look, I'm this messy, flawed person. My thighs are sweaty. I got to change outfits sometimes before I even ask a question. I was like, oh, this is really fantastic. Our audience wants to demonstrate that they too can be vulnerable and they too can show you their warts and freckles and blemishes. And I just, I was like, oh, I really feel good about this. I feel good that this is somehow who's attracted to our stuff and um, that that's what we've curated is vulnerability. I really am happy about that. Yeah, well, I do think that the show is uniquely suited for you in that you know, you've talked about wanting equanimity with your guests of if I'm going to ask them to share something, I'm going to share something. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my earliest questions about the show, listening to it, is, is he going to run out of stories about himself? <laughs> because, <laughs> because there is this, you do have this desire to, if you're going to ask your guests something, that you're going to be right there. And you maybe even one-up them with more puke in my stories. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I've told but, many of pooping my pants stories so far. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like at this point, you got to go out and poop your pants a few times. <laughs> yeah, just, you're, just you're in, absolutely in right. In new places like Target or <laughs> absolutely. In-N-Out. Different venues. Yeah. <laughs> maybe even do it in a live show. There you, you know? go. But, 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 you know, that is one thing that I, I get nervous about. The fact that I talk about myself a ton on the show. So there's part of me that's going like, people must listen to this and go, oh my God, this guy's such a narcissist. Like he's got Jimmy Kimmel on and he's telling a seven minute story. Like what an arrogant guy. And I would say that's a pretty accurate assessment of it. And I would have to just take that. But what I'll say, the, the method to the madness is, there's no way he's telling a story about shitting his pants if I don't tell one about me shitting my pants first, right. at best, he'll match my vulnerability. And then I get into this precarious situation where I think, maybe I should edit out my side of it. Right. So that yeah. you're not sitting, slogging through my story about pooping my pants at Home Depot for the fourth time. <laughs> like, I, I get aware of that. I think Always no, Home no, Depot. That was one of my bigger ones. <laughs> uh, I think... I should I should edit that out because it just at this point I just sound like a narcissist and blah blah blah, but then I then I go what's well, a little bit unethical because Jimmy wouldn't have just leapt into a shitness mind you Jimmy didn't tell it I'm just using this as, as a hypothetical <laughs> like, I don't think it. What to my knowledge t- Jimmy's he's, never he's racking his brain right <laughs> now going, <"Did> I? <laughs> yeah I, I don't know that he's ever ever had an accident like that but let's just say he did I also think it'd be mildly unethical to 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 just have him launch into that story without anyone having the context that I told one first and he met right. me. It's, it feels relevant. But I think that the the, the ultimate outcome of that, it, it, the, the, the means do justify the ends. Like, you just got, I think you're going to have to get through a lot of stories about me so that we can hear really great ones about other people. I just feel like that's the only way it's going to work on my show. Right. Like, like, I'm not Barbara Walters. Somehow she magically 
doesn't reveal a thing about herself, yeah, they're all bawling at the end of it. And they tell these incredible things. Can you imagine going to Home Depot and there's Barbara Walters? Like, <laughs> you didn't realize she just shit her pants? <laughs> well, she's most certainly had a pro- an accident. She's a human. There's no way she hasn't. Babs Walters, as much as we love her, she's not perfect. Well, that's a very self-aware position to be in. And I do think you've discovered a bit of a superpower with your show of the more I'm myself, the more good things come to me, or the more I can be vulnerable, the more people I connect with. And I feel a kinship listening to those stories with you. So number one, that superpower is working, that I feel like you're a more, um, you're a more appealing human being for telling those stories. Oh. But then I think about, you've described yourself as an ex-addict dirtbag who met this woman mm-hmm. who's basically, you know, Disney deemed her a princess. Right. She, she is the embodiment of all that is good and wonderful about women. Yes. And I wonder if the beginning of your relationship, like how it worked that you put those two lives together with that sort of inherent, you know, history of shame and embarrassment and, and trying to make people think you're a certain way and then, and then also having the history of addiction mm-hmm. and, and how you sort of, how you like made that work. Well, this answer is going to surprise you, and it's going to be off-putting, but I'm going to tell you the real answer. Okay. Which is, I have this very weird mix of not thinking I'm good-looking, general low self-esteem, chip on my shoulder that I'm dumb because I was dyslexic, all these things. Yet, unbridled arrogance in relationships. I've always been that way. Really? I don't know how to explain it. I've just... I've always felt very confident in relationships. So I never, ever was like, oh, I hope I can keep Kristen. I was going, do I want to be with a Christian who has eight people living in her house for free, who has to get out of a car when there's a dog that doesn't have a leash and ruin her whole day to rescue this dog? Do I want to be? That's great. She's good. But that's not what I want to do. I'm not that good. I don't want to spend my day finding the owner of a dog. (laughs) So I wasn't uh, fearful I would lose her. I wasn't certain I wanted to be with someone like that. And then what happened, which could have only happened the way it did, is that she never, ever said to me, you know, you could be a little better of a person. She never, ever suggested that I should do that. She very much was like, I get it. This guy is a lot. <laughs> but there's enough about him that I like that I'm along for the ride. Instead, I just slowly through time watched what fruit she bore out of the way she moved through life. I, lo- I looked at the, 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 the results of how she lived and they're pretty undeniable so here's me who's like thinks she lets people take advantage of her and live for free off of her and maybe she pays this manager too much or whatever the thing i the the cynical protective part of my brain was saying i i could also acknowledge she's bringing in a lot more money than you she's getting ahead like well for all these people that are making a fool of her she's doing a lot better than you are I just couldn't deny the reality of how her her life unfolds. There's something charmed about it. And I think it's charmed because it starts with her 
being just endlessly generous and loving and, and, uh, and giving people the benefit of the doubt and believing in people and believing the world's a wonderful place and all these things. And then downriver, it proves to be all those things to her. And me, on the other hand, I'm like, and no one's going to take my wallet. You know, that's all I'm thinking about. And I miss all this other stuff. And then I, I, you know, I just over time was like, it doesn't really matter what case you can make intellectually. You can't deny what the outcome is. And it's so drastically better for her. You know, more people care about her. More people will be there for her. More people. It's just a better life. And, and I wanted that. And so I chose to move more in her direction, you know. She didn't ask me to. I, I wanted what she had, and I replicated it. And, and conversely, I'll pat myself on the back. A lot of the things I think she could have done better, I never said. She's the first person I dated. I made a real conscious decision that I wasn't going to try to make her into the person I wanted to date. Because I know what happens when I try to make them the person I want to date. I don't end up liking that person. And so I didn't do that, and lo and behold, she has come the same exact distance towards me as I've come towards her. You know, without me, she's never on your show admitting she has depression. She's never doing that. That's like something she got from me, and then that has added this level to her life that these people reach out to her and say, I was, I've been with a guy three years I haven't admitted I have depression. I'm so ashamed of that, and she's seen the results of like, what her being honest and flawed and all these things, what, what it cultivates. And so um, it happened to her and it happened to me and neither of us were saying you got to start doing it this way or you need to be this way. It's like some magic osmo- osmosis happened. Well, you're right. Yeah. That is a little off-putting. It is, right? That <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't need Kristen, no, I, I mean, Bell, but You didn't have any sort of shame of like letting her in on the on the, the three days where you took a box of pills? No, and I'll tell you, this is the magic of the 12-step program I'm in, which is I don't have any shame about that now because I listed everything I did. I called the people that deserved an amends, right. and I owned it, and they said, cool, and that's behind me, and I don't have shame about it at all. She was rightly alarmed with like the amount of casual lovers I had had per se and she thought that deserves some shame and I was like no I don't I'm cool with it right I've already all the people that needed it well there's most certainly someone watching who's like I didn't get that phone call <laughs> and listen <sighs> if by the if way if you didn't get that phone call let's just be a cart send us an email yeah blanket I'm so sorry well listen I, I I mean I do think that the way you've chosen to conduct your life and your your relationship and, and to do it publicly and to do it with grace is, is um, it's, it's been really fascinating to watch. And, and I feel like I've, I've known you long enough now to see mm-hmm. the fruits of that. And, and it's, it's quite fascinating and, and you're incredible to talk to. I always love talking to you. As I love talking to you. Well, thanks for doing this again. Yeah. And being my second second. Absolutely. And, uh, I I'll, wish you all the luck with your show. I'll be your third because third. Because clearly you need it. I do. I need it. Thanks for doing this. As I say on my show, I love you, Sam Jones. I love you, Dax Shepard. <laughs> hey, folks, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. 
I always love talking to Dax, whether it's about motorcycles or accidents in Home Depot or raising kids. He's a thoughtful, original, and caring man that has really worked on his life and is living the fruits of his labors. And when you hear his story and when you listen to his podcast and you hear the way he grew up and what he has dealt with, it's quite amazing that he's sitting where he is now and able to tell his own story. So make sure to check out his show, Armchair Expert. I would start with the episode with his mom and the episode with his wife and go from there. It's a fascinating journey to someone who's living with openness and vulnerability. And heck, he only has like a million subscribers every episode, so go help him out. You can also see Dax on Netflix's The Ranch and also on ABC's Bless This Mess. Or if you go out to like the Dumont Dunes or Glamis on any given weekend, you'll find Dax tearing through the sand dunes in some crazy side-by-side razor contraption with his family sitting back at the toy hauler eating sandwiches. That's some inside Hollywood information right there. And if you want the inside information on Off Camera, just go to offcamera.com. There you'll find out that we're also a television show and many other things. And you can also find access to all 175 of our previous shows available for you to watch, listen to, or read as many times as you want in glorious black and white. And every time you do that, you'll expand your mind and support our show. So check out offcamera.com. Also, if you want to suggest a guest or just talk about the show, social media is a great place to do that because we can get a conversation going. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. You can also send me an email, sam at offcamera.com. So don't be shy, reach out. And if you haven't yet subscribed to this show, take a minute, go to iTunes, and subscribe so you can get every show into your feed automatically. Also, when you do that, if you take a minute and leave us a rating or a review, it helps other people find the show. Thank you for that. And I also want to thank everyone that works on this show. Nathan Shields, Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. We unfortunately had to let Matt Davidson go for insubordination, human resources violations, petty larceny, and just some weird stuff left in the refrigerator that bothered the rest of the staff. So I wish Matt well in his future endeavors. And be sure to join me next time when I sit down with actress Regina Hall. My friend, I was like, do you want to come to my house? And she was like, yeah, I'll come. And then I said, we could watch movies. I have 48 hours. But that was an R-rated movie. So that was like a big movie to watch because no one was home. My mother was still at work. So we put it in and it was a porn. My brothers had actually (laughs) labeled everything as a movie and they were really porns. I remember we sat and we were devastated. It was inside Jennifer Wells. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> was it Jennifer Wells or Jennifer's Walls? I, that let's go sounds with that. more like it. God. Wow. <laughs> Childhood memories. Known for years as a comedic actress in films like the Scary Movie franchise, The Best Man, Think Like a Man, and Girls Trip, Regina always seemed to have more in reserve. And she's been proving that lately with her incredibly nuanced and poignant performance in the indie film Support the Girls and in her new Showtime series, Black Monday. See you next time, off camera.